Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. I can't think of a more empathetic job than that of the job of marketer. Hi, I'm Michael Casson. Welcome to Good Company, where I'll explore how marketing, media, entertainment, and tech are intersecting, transforming our lives and the way we do business at a breakneck speed. I'll be joined by some of the greatest business minds and strongest leaders who will share how they've built companies from the ground up or transformed them from the inside out. My bet is you'll pick up a lesson or two along the way. It's all good. It's a great pleasure today to welcome Deirdre Finley, the Global Chief Marketing Officer of Condé Nast, to Good Company. Deirdre, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Deirdre, You started at Condé Nast in this new role in January. I can only imagine that 60 plus days in, the world changed and you had to kind of put a plan into place, I'm guessing, that you probably had to throw out the uh, proverbial window. Just curious how you've had to pivot and what that was like. I guess I'm lucky in that I did have six weeks in the office before things shut down. But the reality is the job that I was hired to do in January was very different once COVID hit. As I think about it, I went from having a little bit of runway to try and establish a vision for my team to all of a sudden being in the throes of a global pandemic where we were all working from home. I feel really lucky that I was in the office for a short period of time, and I actually even went on a business trip. And so I was able to build some relationships, not just with my leadership team, but also with the extended executive team, as well as some of the folks in our London office. So those are the bright spots. So I think the first thing that I did was we pivoted our marketing messages. And we really thought about how to alter those messages and content to make sure that we were reaching newly homebound consumers in the right way. We wanted to make sure that our content struck the right tone and that we were addressing the heightened anxiety our audiences were feeling while keeping them informed and eventually providing them with some escapism content and some entertainment. Number two is we lifted the paywalls for our COVID-19 content, which I thought was really important. You can imagine a world, there was so much uncertainty around this virus. And at the beginning, people were, they were panicking. They were really nervous. They didn't understand what COVID was all about. They didn't understand the health implications and certainly were trying to navigate working from home. And what we realized is our content, we saw huge spikes in engagement and traffic during this time period. And we realized that we were a huge source of trusted information, but I didn't want that content to be behind a paywall when you think about brands like Wired and The New Yorker and Vanity Fair. So for that period of time, we lifted the paywall. In addition, we ended up doing the same thing when the social injustice crisis happened in the summer. The third thing we did was in order to capitalize on the surge of interest in our content and information and the leadership we were providing in this space, we shifted our paid media spend. We wanted to make sure that we were capitalizing on the needs that consumers had to understand more and we wanted to be visible to our consumers in this moment. In addition, we thought it would be a good time, not necessarily at the beginning of COVID, but eventually to launch our first ever New Yorker brand campaign because it was a great way to bring to the spotlight how the New Yorker 
along with some of our other brands, was really helping to fill a need for our consumers. I think in terms of the lessons that I learned in this moment, first and foremost, it just reinforces the fact that speed and agility are absolutely key. We would not have been able to pivot as quickly as we did if we hadn't leaned into the audience trends that we were seeing and we mobilized the team to move quickly. We stood up a global COVID tracker week one that not only supported the consumer business, but supported our commercial teams as well as our video teams and just provided insights on a global level of how people were feeling, what was the type of content that was resonating and what are the opportunities for Conde Nast to help fill some of the needs that our audiences were facing in this time period. I would say the second lesson that I learned was really around, and I feel lucky that I leaned into establishing a vision pretty early on. So despite having only been in the office for six weeks, I was well on my way on my listening tour and really embracing Condé Nast and the vision for the future that we had. And so we had a really strong North Star for what we were trying to do and the beginnings of a clear playbook for how we were going to achieve it. And we quickly socialized that, not just with my extended org, but also cross-functionally. And that really became the blueprint for how we decided to operate. And, you know, I feel lucky in that in the midst of this tragedy, COVID actually helped to accelerate our consumer revenue ambitions. There was just this natural momentum and movement towards digital and online business models because some of the tried and true print and offline roles that we would play were less relevant. And so we were able to accelerate the plans that I was going to put in place for driving incremental consumer and digital revenue. But even more so, we were able to accelerate it in markets like Europe, which had been much more reluctant pre-COVID to make the pivot because print and newsstand was a large part of their revenue. So, Deirdre, let me ask another question, because you talked about acceleration on certain things. E-commerce has been, obviously, one of those items that have so dramatically changed the landscape. And the idea of kind of closing the loop in a different way, we've all heard different prognostications about what could have been a five to seven year trajectory turned out to be a five to seven week trajectory for people's habits changing. Categories that are very important in that house of brands at Condé Nast, so much of that is going to change, but particularly digging into the rise of e-commerce, you have to look at the advertising online or in the pages of your publications, both in print form and digital, as having a much more direct connection to acquiring the goods or services in a digital fashion. How has that changed or what's the team doing differently with that reality in hand? Because it's not about to happen. Yeah, it's not something that's going to happen. It's something that has happened, obviously. It has happened and it has happened quickly. So the stat that I share with my team is that we saw 10 years of e-commerce growth in eight weeks this year. I mean, that's phenomenal. That's <laughs> talk about acceleration. And so we had already begun leaning into e-commerce as an important strategy for us, but we had to quickly do more, <laughs> faster, better. 
And so what we had seen is, you know, marketers were already shifting their dollars to performance marketing channels, right? That was already happening. And what we realized pre-pandemic was that our affiliate commerce program really allowed us to deliver against those goals. So Michael, you talked about how the content that we put out in the marketplace does drive demand for product. You know, we are a trusted source for information. And when we recommend a product or cover a product, we see those products convert. And so when our editors recommend something, people take it seriously. And more importantly, they take action. In 2020, I'm excited to share that we actually doubled our affiliate commerce revenue. And that's as a result of two things. Number one is leaning into the technology infrastructure that we need to support getting the links in place to monetize the editorial recommendations that our team is making. And then number two is investing to make sure that we have the appropriate amount of editorial commerce writers across all of our brands that are following the trends and understanding what we're seeing from our audience development insights around what our consumers want and when they want it. And so e-commerce, as a result, has been an area of significant innovation for us this year, especially as people are spending more time at home and we're seeing an increased demand for products that had never really popped before. I joke that who thought we would be in the market of selling face masks? Well, face masks are (laughs) our number one selling product when Vogue and GQ published an article on the top face masks for summer. Now we just did one recently on face masks for this winter. Those products sell out and often sell out in minutes. It's so true. I was commenting on the masks that my kids were wearing. I said, get me one of those. It's the easiest thing to buy, which by the way, Deirdre brings me to a question because this is a personal admission. As I pick up the pages or the magazine or look online at any of the publications that are going to be fashion forward within the Condé Nast family, I'm finding it hard to say, gee, I really like that sweater or that thing, because then I go to the place of, yeah, but where am I going to wear it, right? And it's a thing that we all kind of been struggling with on some level in terms of what kind of messaging the marketers need to be putting out there. And it's not different for you when marketers are putting messages into literally the pages of or the digital pages of, or on Condé Nast, on your video behemoth that you control in terms of video views, what are you seeing from your clients, if you will, on the kind of messaging they want? Is it okay to look glitzy and chic, or do we have to resort to masks and sweatpants? I think we need to be smart about it. At the very beginning, when there was so much anxiety around COVID, people were very careful, and I think rightfully so. And then as we enter phase two, where people had a lot of their questions answered around the virus and how to stay healthy, and they were really trying to navigate this new work from home normal, then you started to see brands come back into the marketplace with thoughtful communications around how their products can help meet their needs. And then as phase three emerged where people were slowly re-entering the world outside of their home and being really smart about it, 
you started to see commerce pick up in a way that was closer to pre-COVID. And then I think people had permission to be more marketing-y in their communications. The guidance I give my team is lean into what the data is telling us. Yeah. No, no, no. By the way, that's the key. Right? That's the key. And the data is telling us what the customers want and when they want it. And so the beauty of that is our audience development team is working in lockstep with our commerce team, as is our SEO team is working in lockstep with the commerce team to understand what products are trending and what information people are looking for when. And so a great example of that is we saw an increase in demand for meal delivery kits. We made sure that we published roundups on meal delivery kits. Alcohol was spiking. So, you know, yeah, I, pay, I, I did my part. <laughs> Me too. I signed up for wine text. And so that was quite dangerous. At the beginning I'm a martini COVID. man. So I was trying different kinds of vodka, but there you go. I love it. <laughs> but then we also saw things like home workout equipment as everyone was starting to figure out how to stay healthy and fit while being trapped at home. And so those are the products that we were selling. As long as we're leaning into what our consumers are telling us they need and want, I think it's okay to continue marketing. And one thing I know in my history of over the last 10 years of having such an important relationship with Condé Nast, it's so great that you coming into this role in January, your whole background was based on whether it was at Stitch Fix or places you've been before. You understood data as much as anybody. I guess the COVID crisis and the pandemic was an accelerant for you, as it has been for so many people, to get those things deeply accepted in the organization. No, absolutely. And I'm going to start with my favorite topic. I feel like not a day goes by that I don't talk about MarTech, but that is where we started. And I was lucky in that right before I joined the company, there was some work done to reinforce the importance of leaning into our marketing technology stack, things like our customer data platform, our e-commerce engine, our email service provider tool, our content management tool. And we are undergoing major integration across Condé Nast U.S. and Condé Nast International across not just all the markets that we're in, but all the brands. And so there was a huge need for us to have a global MarTech stack that was consistent across not just the U.S. markets, but our international markets. And so that was number one. Number two was, in order to deliver on this, is the importance of building audience, global audiences, multi-channel audiences, because without our audiences, there's no way for us to monetize, right? So both of these things, both MarTech and leaning into audience development was really key to our data and digitization efforts as a company. And then third is our focus on improving our global reporting capabilities, In order for us to deliver on the longer-term plan that we have for the company, ongoing learning is critical. We are only as good as the insights we're able to glean. And in some instances, a lot of our data was sitting in brand silos. Has the consolidation into one company made it easier during times of crisis like this? On the one hand, but the marketing messages have had to be probably moderated based on geographic realities. Europe was in one place before we were. We were there. They're there. We're back. They're gone. 
that must make your job all the more difficult in terms of having consistent messaging when your markets are so diverse in terms of geography, et cetera. Yeah, no doubt. And I think further complicated by the fact that we're in the middle of the global integration. That work isn't done. It's not behind us. And so when I talked about the MarTech infrastructure and getting our audiences straight, that's a big part of what we're trying to do to make sure that we have a global view of our consumers across all the brands. So yes, the job was certainly not easy because we're in the middle of the global integration. And we're also, when you think about COVID, we have the added complexity of different markets being in different phases of the pandemic. And so while one market, right, take Asia, for example, most of our markets in Asia are on the other side of it. Our teams in Taiwan were able to hold an event with thousands of people. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You're making my heart hurt. Well, it made my heart hurt. But then you realize just how far ahead they are with combating this pandemic. And so what they're able to do in Taiwan and in China is very different than we could do here in the U.S. as we go into, I mean, I'm in California. They just locked us down until January. So people's appetite for what we can market and message in California is going to be very different than Asia and very different than in Europe. How is empathy to that which everybody's experiencing kind of played into your marketing decisions or decisions you've had to make this year around content or the paywall, for example. Was that an empathy decision or it was a business decision driven by the fact that people were challenged and you wanted to be that source? I mean, what drove that part of the decision? I think as marketers, our job is ultimately to be the voice of the consumer and to understand and anticipate their needs and wants. That is our job. And so I can't think of a more empathetic job than that of the job of marketer. How are they feeling? How can we evolve our product to better support them? So that's really what drove the decision to remove content in front of the paywall is we saw the data that was showing that huge spikes in traffic to our COVID content, especially a huge spike in engagement with all the content that we were generating around COVID and managing COVID and this new lifestyle of work from home. And I thought the right business thing to do was to think of it as a service that we were providing to our loyal audiences versus leading with monetization. Now, my belief is when you do what's right for the consumer, that pays off in spades on the back end. We always hope that if you pay it forward in some way, you can reap the benefit of it at the other end. You don't always do it for that reason, but it's certainly nice if you can. But it's a nice outcome. And I think the good news is we did what's right by our audiences and that increased engagement and loyalty has continued, right? We've seen people sign up increasingly for our newsletters because they wanna make sure they're the first to receive the information. What we've also seen is that those who sign up for a newsletter are more likely to sign up for a subscription. So they are turning into our most loyal and paying consumers. Now, that's not why I did it, but it's nice to see that that level of doing the right thing has paid off for the business. And then to your question earlier around e-commerce, there's a whole new audience that you're able to engage with the products that our editors are recommending to meet their needs. Well, I've always been a big believer in if you do the right thing, there'll be, generally speaking, unintended benefits 
that have positivity attached to them. It sounds like in that case, it worked. So you said something that was critical. News has taken a hard hit in this last couple of years. How are you reacting to that as a company based on being viewed in some places as the enemy of the people? I mean, uh, that that that's a terrible thing to say, not something I believe or subscribe to, but you know, you're in that business. How is that playing in the halls of the Freedom Tower? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think when you think about our business, right, we are a global media company. We have 37 distinct brands that we publish in 32 markets in 26 languages. And to your point, there are some of our brands that lean more to news There are others that lean more to lifestyle. So when you think about Architectural Digest, Allure, Bon Appetit, The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, GQ, Glamour, and so on and so on. And so I don't think we get painted with the same brush equally across all of our brands. Our job is to do what's right and tell the stories that are relevant and timely I think some of that puts us into that news camp and we can sometimes get into trouble. But what I get more excited about is how when we are telling our truth and speaking truth to power, that mobilizes our audiences in ways that drives more loyalty. And frankly, I think that loyalty is what's ultimately more important. And it gives us permission to play a role in people's lives that's bigger And I think about what I get excited about is us becoming much more of a lifestyle brand where it makes sense, which will enable us to monetize well past what gets published in our magazines or what gets distributed through our digital channels. On a macro level, are there any particular changes that you see that organizations like Condé Nast are going to still have to make as we go forward? Because we're going to come out of this, God willing, early in the new year. We'll return to what is that new normal. It's a very important notion because this is a crisis, but there's so much goodness in terms of speed and agility and innovation that has been driven as a result of having gone through this. We're never going to be the same, but I think that's a really good thing. So that's number one. So that's for the behavioral side of it. I think on the business side of it, I think we have a massive opportunity as traditional and evolving (laughs) traditional media company, right? To figure out how we stay relevant in the face of new competitors. And so the digital players like the Facebooks, the Googles and other social media companies of the world, they've done an amazing job of capitalizing on the inspiration that Condé Nast is driving and they are monetizing that interest in ways that we cannot. And so I view my job as really figuring out how we capitalize on our extensive audience and the trust that we have with those audiences, because that's the key. And so that shift needs to continue from traditional print advertising to new monetization models. So namely, the areas that we've been playing in are subscriptions. And that's basically taking the model and making sure that we have the recurring revenue stream, be it print and digital or digital only. 
other direct-to-consumer businesses. You know, we launched our Allure Beauty Box business. We also have a GQ Box business that does amazing job capitalizing on the strong editorial integrity that we have on those brands to bring product and discovery to our audiences. There are new membership propositions that we're thinking about across content and community and commerce that are going to be exciting for us to bring to life. Doubling down on what events should look like. We learned a lot this year that events don't all have to be in real life and that we can actually monetize virtual events quite compellingly if we have the right proposition. And then commerce, which we already discussed, is really the future. I think that this is a really interesting place for Carne Nass. When you think about the breadth of our brands, I could see a world where these rundles go beyond the individual brands and the individual titles and start to extend across the Carne Nass portfolio. And that's what gets me excited. Like once we've built out this MarTech infrastructure, I have a 360 degree view of my consumer, not just within a brand, but across all of the brands. Imagine the robust propositions that we could start to put in front of consumers because I recognize the complexity of my relationship or an individual's relationship with Condé Nast as being more than just Vogue, but you're Vogue, you're Bon Appetit, you're the New Yorker, you're Wired, and how can we create an offering that is uniquely tailored to you? So that's my dream and my ambition. Well, listen, Deirdre, I want to take a moment to just say thank you for spending this time with me on Good Company. What I always love about this platform is the ability to interact with smart people, learn a lot, and share those thoughts and insights with our listeners. So on a personal note, Deirdre, with very much a Condé Nast affinity, as I told you, both familial and professional, I want to thank you for taking the time today and joining Good Company. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for having me. I'm Michael Casson. Thanks for listening to Good Company. Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. A special thanks to Lena Peterson, Chief Brand Officer and Managing Director of MediaLink, for her vision on Good Company. And to Jen Seeley, Vice President, Marketing Communications at MediaLink, for programming amazing talent and content. Good Company is edited by Ernie Indradat. 